Welcome to Diamonds in the Rough Draft, a heartfelt dig through discarded drafts from our past. I'm your co-host, Eric Anderson. And I'm Emily Anderson. On draft this week is Lord Grey from Three Taverns Craft Brewery. While we drink our way through, we will be working through Eric's rough draft of Quirk. So, Eric, tell me about this beer. So this is a very unique beer, and it is an Earl Grey Tea Sour Ale. We had just mentioned sour ales on a previous episode, yeah. and Emily found this at the store. It was a hard um, choice because I love Earl Grey tea. Not the biggest connoisseur of sour ales. Yeah, we go through a serious amount of Earl Grey in this house. Yeah. Caffeinated and decaffeinated. <laughs> uh, and then we went, when we were in Paris, we found something that was like Earl Grey, but different. Do you remember what it was called? Milk? I think it was called like Parisian Blue or something yeah, like that. It was it was wonderful. I want to say it was, I think the brand is Mariage of Frere. It's like the big French tea company. Oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the one. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, all right. So to return to beer, the land of beer where we live, you'll have to check our Instagram for a picture of this can because it is beautiful. They've put a lot of work into the artwork and it has a dude who I can only assume is Lord Grey who has an orange over his eye, which is just classy. It's like yeah. a monocle. It's like an orange monocle. A delicious monocle. So uh, the, the description of the beer is... Another from our Sour Asylum series of lacto-fermented beers, Lord Grey offers up the flamboyance of the bergamot orange. Bright and balanced and quintessentially British, the world's most famous tea adds strong tangy and zesty flavors of orange and lemon to this lighter-bodied sour ale. Wow, they're making some bold claims. The most famous tea in the world. I wouldn't think so. What is the most famous tea? Green? I... I don't, maybe, maybe green tea. <laughs> Just green. I don't know. I think like oolong or salon or one of the like actual teas. I don't know. This is just some British mix that these upstarts made. They're not. So like, jasmine, maybe jasmine so like tea. From, from the areas of the world where tea actually comes from. That's probably the world's yeah, most famous. Yeah, yeah. This is the most famous for white people. Let's just let's just <laughs> say. That. Yeah, is that gonna make it in? I don't know. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, quick. Let's talk about beer. Cheers. Cheers. Ha <laughs> ha! Victory is mine. <laughs> I, I, I had to lean over at too weird of an angle with it at this table. We're coming at you from a new location, our dining room table. In a bold move, we've abandoned the closet. The size of a postage stamp. I still don't know. We've had smaller closets than that one. No, we haven't. Yes, we have. No, we haven't. Apartment one. Okay, probably because I don't actually remember (laughs) the closet. She's never been inside. Okay, it's coming back to me. It's coming back to me. The one with the suspicious stain that may have been nail polish or may have been blood. It was dark, that's for sure. Yeah. Definitely dark. So, but I I am very impressed with how they got the flavor of the Earl Grey into this beer. It's really not that sour either. I find the aftertaste to be quite sour and it like kind of spoils the tasting notes of Earl Grey and bergamot orange. For me, but I'm gonna drink all of this and it won't be too great a hardship. Well, I'm proud of you. But it is, <laughs> most of the time, if a beer describes itself, I couldn't pick those flavors out. But if, yeah. if somebody just handed, handed this to me, I would be able to say, 
this tastes like Earl yeah. Grey. I wish somebody would make a Blue Moon style beer, but with Earl Grey. That would be real good. I just don't want the sour aftertaste. I just don't need that sour. After we do this for half seasons, we're going to start brewing our own beer. You know this is <laughs> just going to happen. That's too much work. <laughs> Tell me more about Three Taverns. Three Taverns, yes. Three it's taverns. in Decatur, Georgia. South oh, Atlanta. we love Decatur. One of our favorite French restaurants is there. French Al- cuisine. Alsace. Alsace. Yeah, Cafe Alsace. Yes, that Alsace. sounds right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was wonderful. It was really... Yeah, and Decatur is a really cool place. They have an independent bookstore that we spent way too long. Yeah, it was like a kid's bookstore. Yeah. yeah. yeah we spent a lot of money. Well, there. that whole area is kind of known as being like a writerly creative district. Isn't there a Decatur Book Festival? There is a Decatur a De- Book Festival. Yeah. yeah. So. We've not... Bean, but we'd like to. If you'd like to sponsor our trip to the Decatur <laughs> Book Festival, we can put up a tent. Please contact. We us. can record live. <laughs> There's so many possibilities. Do they allow alcohol? I don't know. <laughs> so I wanted to, to, to talk about uh, Three Taverns Brewery and the name behind it because Three Taverns was a real place some 2,000 years ago on the Apian Way just outside of Rome. Um, this is according. Wow. I was like, this can't be 2,000 years ago. Colonized America is not 2,000 years old, Eric. That was a big fake out. Until you said Appian Way, I was like, where is he going with this? I, I confused her. Yes. I'm not talking about the brewery. I'm talking about the name. Yes, of way. The Appian Way. Yes, that was a Doctor Who reference. Was it? Eric didn't catch it. I oh did. I'm still It's confused. my favorite bit in my one of my favorite doctor who episodes the fires of pompeii Mm -hmm. and she's like you fought them off with a water pistol i bloody love you and then they're running and she says no way and he says yes way appian way okay see yeah see i I, before i read this description of this brewery's name history i would not have gotten that joke the appian way was like major i feel like all of the slaves that were crucified in the spartacus rebellion i feel like they were crucified along the appian way but i could be wrong i just know it was like a big thoroughfare well the name of this brewery comes from three taverns which is a real place 2000 years ago on the appian way we don't know much about it but from stories we're told it's a place of thanksgiving and hospitality and it probably actually means three shops which would have been a general store a blacksmith shop and a refreshment house oh yeah because a taverna was a shop right sure I took Latin in high school. I did not. I took one, I almost had one season. I took one semester of <laughs> That's Latin. That's how our life is broken ooh, up. It's ooh, into seasons. This is the only uh, chance I'll probably have to tell this story. So my Latin textbook in high school had this family, Caecilius, Metella, and I can't remember, Quintus. Quintus was the son. And the Doctor Who episode that I referenced earlier those people definitely read the same Latin textbook because the people are called Caecilius, Metella, Quintus, and then they shoehorned a daughter in there, too. <laughs> <laughs> and they had a daughter. We don't know her name. She wasn't in the text. <laughs> but she's, like, really important to the episode, so that's that's a bad on me. But... Well, these three, these three taverns, these three shops, are mentioned in the Book of Acts as Paul is traveling on the Appian Way to go to Rome. Oh. So that's another how they've okay. been... Uh, popularized in the Christian West. Cool. So why did they choose this name? That's all I have for you. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, just because it's considered to be a 
you know, historical place of hospitality and rest. Ah. Joy and... You know, uh. like Paul has friends come out from Rome to meet him at that waypoint. Yeah. So they kind of just party there and like relax until they go into Rome. <laughs> I don't recall Paul partying. I skipped that Paul part. Paul parties as Paul parties, all right? <laughs> the Bible doesn't say it, but you know, they, the Bible. you know they had a good time. I don't know. He sounds rather dour. I think he may have been actively arrested during this time period. (laughs) And was just being prison transported to Rome. So which prison break was this? He had several, didn't he? Well, he wasn't. I don't think he was broken. I think he was actively being transported to Rome. No, there's. Okay. I remember very distinctly from this coloring book my great grandmother sent me when I was like 10 of Bible stories. That hey, it, Grandma, it worked. She remembered the Bible. Remembered some random things. But God throws open the gates of the jail. Yeah, that happens. Well, I consider that a prison but, break. You know, he God have, breaks them out of the jail. But he doesn't leave. That's like part of the story. Oh, well, that wasn't well said in the coloring book. <laughs> the coloring book doesn't go on to the next part, where the jailers are so impressed with him for not leaving and being such an honest guy that they, like, give him extra bread or something. I don't, oh. I don't think they let him go. Come um, on, Paul. Run away. That was your moment. Okay. Pick, pick, pick your battles, dude. All right. So that's that's our beer, I guess. Well, wait, how old is this brewery? Is it also 2,000 years old? It is not 2,000 years old, (laughs) but it did come about in the early 2000s. Okay, so it might as well be 2,000 years old as far as the craft brewery scene is concerned. I got got it here, I got it here, let's see, let's see, let's see. 2005, he moved to, oh, 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 here we go. The first official beer was poured to a welcoming public on July 19th, 2013. Oh, we're coming up on their anniversary. On their eight-year anniversary. Yeah, we should go there. How did you get 2005 from uh, 2013? He moved to Decatur, uh, Brian. In 2005. Brian. Brian. He has like a last life name, of I'm Brian. Sure. We're having so many Roman references here. We've got yeah. the life of Brian, you know. Because that, that's definitely a Roman reference. Definitely a Roman reference. That is original. <laughs> Always look on the bright side, side of, of life. life. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay, okay. So now. Well, what do, first, first. Well, not first, because we just talked about the beer. First, before you try to get serious, <laughs> what are you thinking about right now? I'm thinking about genre, um, and I am thinking about genre because I know this will come as a big shock to everyone listening to our podcast, but I like podcasts, <laughs> <laughs> and I listen to a lot of them. So one of my favorite podcasts is Faded Mates uh, with Sarah McLean and Jen Prokov um, talking about rom- all things romance novel. Um, and she, Sarah McLean, was featured on a 99% Invisible episode called The Clinch, talking about romance novels and the romance genre and kind of giving her her bullet points for what counts as being romance genre. And I've just been dwelling on them. Um, I read, at the moment, I read a lot of romance, although um, in the past, most of my genre reading was probably fantasy, maybe a little bit of sci-fi. I don't know, but it was mostly Star Wars novels. Does that count? Yes. Okay. Star Wars does count as sci-fi slash fantasy. <laughs> okay, cool. I read... It's a historical satire, I read, okay? like, a sliver of sci-fi. 
And then, like, a lot, a lot of fantasy. Uh, So I find myself reading a lot of romance now, not because there's a lack of romance in my life, but I don't know if you guys noticed, but there was a pandemic, and there were not a lot of happy endings in the pandemic, and it was kind of scary about whether there would be a happy ending. And a convention of the romance genre is that there is a happy ending. You know that the two are going to end up together, and it will stop at a happy moment in their life, which is very soothing for somebody with anxiety like I have. Yeah, I yeah. can see that. I was When she asked me this question earlier, <clears throat> and I was trying to think about the genres that have been most important to me, and obviously fantasy, science fiction have definitely been some very, very important ones. Yeah. Uh, but I also realized that, <clears throat> especially growing up, so many of the books that I read were either complete mysteries or had a subgenre of being mysteries. Yeah. I mean, to a certain extent, even Harry Potter is a fantasy mystery. mystery. Everything has a mystery that they're trying to unwind. Yeah. But even besides that... Well, I think... So, okay. I think that a lot of novels have a mystery as the plot. Like, a lot of stories have a mystery as the plot. That doesn't make them part of the mystery subgenre. I think to be part of the mystery subgenre, like, the whole point of the story has to be solving the mystery. You have a detective, whether it's, you know, a police officer or, you know, like an amateur detective or, like, a professional PI. Like, you have a detective figure that people have gone to to solve this mystery. Can you think of an example of that that is not a murder mystery? Um, the purloined letter. Okay. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you again, Wishbone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, just Poe's first story. Yeah. yeah that's fine. Was that Poe? Yeah. I didn't know that was Poe. I just po. know that Wishbone did an episode. Well, now you know. Yeah. Now you know yeah. it's Poe. He lost, he loses his bone. Oh, wishbone. <laughs> Poor little Bob. Really? It's the purloined bone? No, I think the, with the humans, like Joe, somebody that, was it DeMont is like his nemesis at school. I think DeMont. Sorry, I have to Google this now. I think DeMont takes something from Joe and Wishbone at the same time thinks someone has stolen his squeaky toy or his bone because because that's the theme of the episode. But then he figures out that he just buried it somewhere different than he usually does. So then he ends the episode like digging in Wanda's yard. Oh, I love Wishbone so much. Can you? How much fun would it have been to be a writer on Wishbone? I know, right? Mm. I wrote a paper in grad school about how the Wishbone version of The Tempest is the only true film version of The Tempest to ever exist. Because... At the end of The Tempest, the play, they come up on stage and address the audience, mm-hmm. which just completely breaks the fourth wall and all of the activities that they've been doing just kind of don't make any sense. And it's Prospero. He's like a wizard. So I think Shakespeare just gets away with it, whatever. But in the Wishbone episode, what they, they do... They do that. Well, what they do is... The kids the are char- putting the on a school play. The characters are putting on a play. Yeah, I remember. So you're going back and forth between them actually putting on the play... 
to and the then, actual audience. Yeah. And Wishbone enacting what is yeah, going on. Wishbone's yeah, Wishbone's dramatization. It just it yeah. doesn't make sense in a movie version where there is no audience. What like what do you do? Do you have somebody <clears throat> just look straight into the camera and address the audience? Yeah. So they've done it a couple of different ways. In the most recent Tempest that was done by oh, what is her name? She did the Tamor. Julie Julie Tamor, Tamor yeah. They have <clears throat> Prospero's last speech as a song that is played over the credits. <laughs> so, very Clever. Artsy. Yeah, she's an artsy one. Clever. Um, so, oh, so that's the thing that I did. Yeah, okay, so circling back, we talked about how mystery, you have to have, like, a detective who is trying to solve the mystery, and that is the central plot. That's the A plot. Yeah. But lots of stories have a mystery that the characters are trying to solve, but that's not the main point of the story, and you don't have a detective figure. I guess that's true. In in many of the examples that I'm, that I'm thinking of where there is a mysterious element it's not like you have the one detective or group of detectives that are trying to solve it not like a lot of children's books like the hardy boys the boxcar children nancy drew even those they are detective figures trying to solve and lots of those are about stolen stolen things and i'm pretty sure sherlock holmes has several plots i think actually most of his are like things being stolen i don't know that too many sherlock holmes stories are full on somebody has been murdered. He like, well, maybe I think the Hound of the Baskervilles. Does, there is a murder in that, right? Honestly, I have I don't too remember. much other Sherlock yeah. stuff in my head. I've seen too many too TV many shows, mediums. too many movies, yeah. read too many books, too many comic books. Like, there's just too much. Sherlock I know he out there prevents now. a further murder, but I don't know if one does successfully happen. About, okay, but, so okay, circling so, back, so, so you. I want to talk about. All right, so I, I had talked about. And a lot of the genres that I read growing up. But what I actually had a really hard time doing was trying to think of books that I have read that wouldn't fall into one of these quote-unquote genre categories. What do you mean? Does that make sense? Like, Are you trying to think of literary fiction books? Yes. Okay. Um, well, To Kill a Mockingbird is literary fiction. The Historian, I believe, was literary fiction. So even if it has speculative elements, you think it can still be included? Yeah, the that doesn't have a detective. She's not a detective. She's like a historian. Well, no, no, that's not the point that I was trying to make. It, I guess it was more of the point that in the historian, Dracula is real. You know, their vampires are real. And yeah. Well, okay. Real. So according to the Gotham Writers Workshop. Literary fiction emphasizes meaning over entertainment and aspires toward art, whereas genre um, has like a bunch of conventions within the genre that it sticks to and values entertainment over art. Now, I take issue with some of that. I think there are some beautiful, beautiful, beautiful genre writers. I mean, Catherine Arden comes to mind off the top of my head. I honestly, anything Sarah McLean writes is really gorgeous. I mean, Jane Austen is like the prototype of romance novels. Like her stuff never gets categorized as romance because it like it kind of inspired the genre. It's just categorized in the classics. Yeah, yeah. So, but like that wasn't written to be literary fiction. That was written to be the equivalent of. 
she was writing it to be popular fiction. Yeah. You know, and I, I do think that's another way to say something is genre is to say this is popular fiction. And I do think that unfortunately there is this push to not consider genre fiction art on the level with literary fiction. Hence you get this definition that says literary fiction aspires towards art. And I think that's poppycock. And I think all written works are art. We're all trying to say something with our art, you know. We, we both came from writing programs <laughs> and I've come to terms with this now. But at the time, it was very annoying. We both came from writing programs that where we were not allowed to write specifically fantasy and science fiction. And oh, mine didn't. My program didn't allow genre at, at all. Like you weren't allowed to write in any genre. It was all supposed to be literary fiction. I, I guess I I feel like if you're not in fantasy and science fiction, then it's easy enough to squeak something through. Like if you're just writing romance. How is somebody going to necessarily know that you're writing romance? Because it's all about... Well, romance has sex mm -hmm. or a big deal made about kissing. Yeah. If you don't have sex, there's like a big deal made about kissing. And the plot is all about how these people are going to fall in love. Like, again, stories will have romance elements. So I, I guess the point that I was trying to make is I now understand in my great age and wisdom why my creative <laughs> writing teachers decided to cut out fantasy and science fiction from our writing because they did not want us to be so <clears throat> involved and like so fascinated by how the 14 emeralds made their way across the barren sea to finally be picked up by the dark prince that we didn't worry about characterization. I just made all that up. None of that's true. Yeah. You know? It's yeah. just like it, world building is so much fun and it's addictive. Yeah. And if I let myself get into it, then I'll just start writing backstories and sacred objects a, and well, weird animals and all of this other kind of stuff at the expense of actual story. But, okay. I think we've gone as far in that what are you thinking about as we can. So... That was wonderful. Now, before you give us the dramatic reading, dramatic reading, Eric, tell us what you remember about this poem and why it was written. Again, this is quirk. This is quirk. So I remember writing this when I was in college. So this was probably, yeah, January 2009. So I was a junior uh, in my second semester at Troy University. And this was probably for... My poetry class, which at that point was probably taught by Dr. Thompson or... Name drop. Or Jim Davis. <laughs> Name may, drop. I think it might have been Jim Davis. Name drop. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> My name drop fairy over here. So I remember the image that, that, that inspired this poem, but the rest of it just flowed freely, and that'll make a lot more sense after I read it. Wait, so was this inspired by, like, a picture? This was inspired by a scene from Batman. Okay. The Dark Knight. Okay. I don't know what scene you're talking about. So, I'm going to read it, and bad. then I'm going to explain okay. what it is. Okay, so I'm making a note. So, foreshadowing, I wrote in part of my edits, my suggestion 
things depend on the intentions and inspiration of this poem. So I am noting that it was a dark night movie scene. Oh, hello, Kemet. Hello, cat. We have a cat sighting. One of the um, podcasts that I listen to, when their cat wanders by, they get cat purring ASMR on the mic. But that would be... Why does it have to be ASMR? Why can't it just be cat purring? I don't know. It feels like a really fun buzzword that I just (laughs) keep dropping. I don't even know if I'm using it correctly. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Okay, so like I, it has been a really long time since I saw The Dark Knight. So I, I will describe everything to you. Okay, cool, 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 so, cool, cool, no doubt, no doubt, no doubt, no doubt. It was literally I had to write a poem for class. This scene from this movie inspired me, and then I wrote a poem. Okay, and that's it. All right. Well, so, thank you for sharing with us. And now, a dramatic reading. Dramatic reading. A dramatic, dramatic reading. reading. Quirk. <clears throat> there a group meets every second Thursday alongside a burning fire engine, and they discuss the world for hours on end, all listening intently to the words of teachers and philosophers who lie, and painters who refuse to buy a brush. Two men who know they're insane listen and nod at the doctor's complaints while three men, one blind, one mute, converse about the day's weather and all the different shades of blue, and a fat man devours a salad roasted on a stick. When darkness casts long shadows over them, they pull on gloves that freeze off hands and tip umbrellas leaking down their necks. Those drips from the thirsty treetops, when the moon sets, the place abandons them. They go their separate ways until the time when the world discusses them for hours on end. Yay! Good job. Thank you. Thank you. So the the scene, now that I've read the poem, the scene that I can tell you about is there's a, there's a part in the dark night when they are trying to transport the Joker from point A to point B, and the prison transport is blocked by a burning fire engine. And that's it. That's what. It, that's what inspired. Yeah, that's this. what. That's what inspired this. Because well, I after, was sitting here as you were reading it this time, being like, "Okay, is that the penguin? Is this Mister Freeze?" <laughs> no, these aren't like Batman villains in here. No, no, no. I, you took it too far. Too far. No, it was a single scene. It was a single image because. We watched this movie a ton. Like, everybody did. It was it was everywhere. Well, everybody and didn't watch it a ton. Everybody watched it a Some ton. Some people Emily. watched it once. And then again, when their new boyfriend made a huge deal about liking The Dark Knight, one watched it again. So some people have watched this twice. <laughs> some people twice. out there have watched it twice. Well, in case that scene didn't stick with you twice, watcher, this happened, all right? I was just struck by the fact that the fire engine was on fire because that's ironic. So when I first read this, I was thinking about the wild murals that um, specifically the firehouses in Auburn and Opelika had painted. I don't feel like they're... Firehouse subs. Yeah, firehouse subs. Firehouse subs. That's an important fact. Eric worked at firehouse subs for like 
a long, like a long time. Just seven years. I started like in a high long school, time, and then that's almost as long as we've now been together. So I'm gonna say that's a long <laughs> it is. time. I'm proud of my history at the firehouse. <laughs> I could still make a sub today. Yeah. Well, so I feel like I haven't seen such wild murals um, at the firehouses up here, but like specifically the ones in Auburn had like really big detailed slightly bizarre murals painted in them that usually involved like fire trucks and so i was kind of trying to remember whether or not there was a mural with a burning fire engine that would be a little dark for (laughs) For a a firehouse subs yeah i think this episode not sponsored yet by firehouse yeah well you know since i know you i was like already trying to make meaning and it took me like an entire read through to realize that this had no meaning (laughs) it's gotta be so hard to know me because (laughs) you're constantly trying to figure out the deep meaning in these things that i do well i mean so that's an interesting like side note that is a like um like a reading lens or theory that people will apply to poems and i think that is a danger that you know i wasn't being a very responsible reader trying to read that through this lens i mean if you will i actually find that to be kind of a juvenile approach so you know you're a death of the author kind of reader i am a death of the author kind of reader well and i believe most writers would prefer that to be the lens whether or not they were expressing something that actually happened to them There's the story that you tell in a poem, and people will just create a story that they want to tell. So I think it's dangerous, dangerous, dangerous to try to make more meaning of a poem because of something that happened in the author's life that you feel attaches to this than to just make meaning from the literal words on the page because there's a reason that the poet chose the words that they did, Yeah, you know? Yeah, it's probably different. Like the the poem that we talked about in last season of the birds, when we were talking about what I was going through in my life, and yeah. we used that to revise the poem. Yeah, we couldn't kill the author then because the work was still going on. Like so, I, I think in a workshop yeah. environment, you got to keep the author alive if you're trying to get down into what the soul of the poem well, really yeah, is. Well, yeah, but when I was approaching this poem, I had to approach it from the point of view of, like, this was a finished work. I suppose, yeah. You know, for... And I mean, that that's the point of, of... That's the premise of this podcast, right? That we have a bunch of finished works that aren't very good as they stand, as they were finished, and we want to rewrite them and figure out or like redirect that energy if you will so all right right, well to get to get back to it so that was it i had an assignment to write a poem i was struck by the imagery of a fire engine on fire and just kind of started writing and then decided to try to come up with well what other strange things are like that fire engine is meant to put out fires and it is on fire what else would be like that and just kind of came up with these different scenarios of nonsense you know a blind person talking about the, the blue sky, eating a salad but roasting it over a fire. Yeah. Um, those kinds of things like that. And Yeah, I liked I liked those. So I liked the really the specificity of um so I actually didn't pick up that it was inspired by this burning fire engine or like the irony of a burning fire engine. I was like I don't think anybody else got it either. <laughs> yeah. 
I think it's because of its placement in the poem. I think if you if it had come after the listening intently to the words of teachers or and philosophers who lie, although I have a note about that line. So, you know, I love the painters who refuse to buy a brush, two men who know they're insane, listen and nod at the doctor's complaints. Honestly, I just like the line, two men who know they're insane. (laughs) Listen. The salad roasted on a stick, the the gloves that freeze off hands. Like, I liked the specificity of those, those images, and I, you know, there's a very... Through the looking glass, feel very bizarre. Definitely Lewis yeah. Carroll inspired. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. Well, so for that reason, once I picked up on that, I was disappointed that it didn't rhyme. Okay. Apparently, a theme of this is I keep feeling like you should rhyme more. <laughs> <laughs> but so. I did have questions like, okay, this note says not sure what the setting is like what time what place because like why are they wearing gloves which i now understand you were just looking for opposite images or ironic images bizarro images um so i'm trying to think i didn't have a lot of suggestions for what to do with this because i couldn't really figure out what the intent was other than just to create kind of this bizarro dreamy feel and I think that if that's all you want to do with this poem that I mean there are some tweaks I'd offer here and there some things that I'd cut out but otherwise I I don't see that you could accomplish much more I'm, I'm really going back and forth because on one hand this was just created as a yeah, let's create a dream state. Let's throw some nonsense on the page and just kind of create a feeling. But... I would challenge you to do more yeah, than that, though, because I... I want to see if I can actually say something. I think I think that... And, of course, I can't think of any off the top of my head right now, but I think the most successful poems that create this, uh, like, Lotus Eater world... That's not right. But that create like a through the looking glass feel. They have something to say. Like I think this is this is a a um, an evocation that could be very useful for social commentary. Yeah, it definitely could be. And I, I mean, you veer out. you veer into that with teachers and philosophers who lie. Like that. That's actually why it took me kind of. I think it was the sandwich or salad roasted on a stick before I realized, oh, wait, this is supposed to be nonsense. Because listening intently to the words of teachers and philosophers who lie sounds so much like a sentence with a commentary. It is, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's supposed to be, again, kind of like, you know, the irony, they're supposed to be teaching, but they're not telling truths. Yeah. Um, I think that loses because you've got two professions like all of the rest of these are kind of one yeah one image like the burning fire engine the painters who refuse to buy a brush the salad roasted on a stick gloves that freeze off hands like they're single things and then you've lumped these two i mean teachers and philosophers are very different their jobs are very different i suppose i guess i was thinking of philosophers of more of the Aristotelian philosophers of like well yeah they were teaching people too they had students yeah but I don't feel that's what most people would picture when yeah. they think of philosophers. I feel like people nowadays are probably more inclined to think of Descartes than Aristotle when one hears philosopher. So I'm trying to think about just, again, and I want to talk about the meter of some of how I did the meter, but if I were to get an idea into this. 
What meter are you following in this? Well, I just said I didn't want to talk about it right now. Oh, you didn't? Yeah. Oh, okay. I heard I do want to talk uh, about it. Well, now we're doing know. it, so let's do yeah. it. Well, so I, didn't, first... I didn't like the first few well, lines. So the fir- well, it, it's, it, it doesn't hold. That's the problem. I don't know what I was trying to do, but the first line is trochaic pentameter. There, a group meets every second Thursday. Okay, apparently I don't. Da, 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 apparently da, da, I don't da, like da. trochaic because um, I was like, "This is awful. This rhythm is not good." <laughs> so it, it it is often as opposed to iams the da 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 da. da iams are a little bit more lilting, mm-hmm. uh, more easygoing. Tro- trochees are often heavy hitters. Yeah. Um, well, so it feels kind of strange to start a surreal poem with that meter then yeah. well and it's the only time i use that meter in the entire poem so it doesn't it doesn't hold uh, the second line just doesn't have a very good meter at all alongside a burning fire engine da 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 yeah i have a note that these are terrible first yeah. lines i mean that these first lines are right out <laughs> also the title that title is right out <laughs> yeah i told you I, I don't title things i just don't do it um but the third line is really good iambic pentameter and they discuss the world for hours on end da 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 so there are another one, two, three, four, five instances where I do a good job with iambic pentameter. One time when I do iambic tetrameter, they pull on gloves that freeze off hands. Da 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 da. da. But there's only four beats instead of five. I liked that rhythm. I found myself writing a lot of tetrameter instead of pentameter. So I'm thinking about adopting that and doing the whole thing in iambic tetrameter instead. Mm-hmm. But I might go back and forth and do like pentameter, tetrameter, pentameter, tetrameter. I just have to decide. Are you saying that you find iambic, iambic tetrameter easy to write on, write in or that most of this poem ended up being iambic? No, I just find it natural and easy to write in. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Just the, the four beats. So... I, I do need to do something. Like, I need to come up with a form and stick with it. And right now, it's just kind of all over the place. So, yeah. I, I have to work on both form and function. I think that's poem. something that's actually kind of important about... Well, if we come to Lewis Carroll, like, his poems have strict, rigid form. They yeah. evoke this really surreal, and yet the world has rules. He was a mathematician, so I guess that makes sense. You know, the world... I, I mean, I, I would see that as an example of how the rules free you up to be so creative. What is it, the Bandersnatch? Yeah, that's exactly... It's Jabberwocky. Jabberwocky, um, yeah. I, I was literally just searching Jabberwocky. Yeah, the Jabberwocky is, is mostly nonsense. But it isn't. So that's the great thing about Jabberwocky, is that it is telling a story with most of the words made up. But it doesn't matter that they're made up because he uses them in such a way that you sort of it know still makes happening. sense. Yeah. Like it doesn't matter that it's a vorpal sword; it's just a sword, and we will use it to kill this creature. It doesn't matter that we don't know what the Jabberwock is; it's a monster that needs to be defeated. Yeah. So yeah, it's in that way. Well, right. and so you see that, uh, but the poem rhymes. It has a meter that he sticks to. Because it's very rhythmic. It's very yeah. easy yeah. to... Yeah, I'll just read the first stanza. Twas brillig in the slithy toves, did gyre and gimble in the wave, all mimsy were the borough groves, and the moan wraths outgrave. 
So yeah, it's so, just, it gives a feeling. Yeah, it, and I think it's because the world has rules. I mean, our world has rules. So I think a world grounded in rules, whether it's a poetic world of, of form and meter that are the, the rules for the world building that you're doing in a poem or whatever you decide are going to be the rules that you follow. I think a poem is better for it. I think any world building is better for it because that's what we know. That's what we're familiar with. Yeah. And I might do what I wound up doing with my sonnet rewrite with kind of a turn at the end. Yeah. And not that I'm going to put this into sonnet form, but, but that I will play with the nonsense and then try to bring it in at the end as kind of a, a turn, a surprise, I think, uh, an application to the everyday that we wouldn't necessarily expect. Yeah, I really want to... So I like what you said about trying the iambic tetrameter. I also kind of want to challenge you to see if you can do this in rhyme. I think that's a really fun convention to see in a surreal poem. It does make it more fanciful. More yeah, I think it does. Yeah. yeah. I think the best parts of this poem are they discuss the world for hours on end, listening intently to the words of teachers and philosophers who lie and painters who refuse to buy a brush, two men who know they're insane listen and nod at the doctor's complaints, devours a salad roasted on a stick. Like, that little section. I don't like the bit. Well, you say, well, three men, and then you only count two. That's on purpose. Okay, well, it (laughs) didn't... It didn't land. It, it doesn't, doesn't follow land. the conventions yeah. of your other images. Yeah. Yeah. So I think you need to figure out who is the group and why are they meeting. Impose iambic tetrameter, perhaps some rhyme. I think that's going to make this feel more fun and just better if you know who they are and why they're meeting. You might even just hone in on one of those. Like... What if it was a meeting of of a bunch of painters who refused to buy a brush and they're all talking about pieces of artwork that they're working on? One could be working on a burning fire engine. One could be working on a snowman putting on, I don't know, oven gloves. And I mean, if you think of, of other elements of just Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass, they're very narrow incidents that are surreal. You know, like she goes to court, but it's a court of playing cards. Yeah. That's a, that's the surreal incident. She goes to a tea party, but it's a tea party of mad people. It's this narrow scope of a tea party. Yeah. You know? There is a setting. Like it's a setting that we are familiar with. Yeah. That, that is then twisted a yes. little bit. So we need to know what this setting is. What is this? Is it a yeah. tea party? Is it a court? Is and that's it a... what I was that's what I was desperately trying to figure out as I was reading this. Because you like it's very purposeful. A group meets every second Thursday and they discuss the world. And then they go their separate ways until the time when the world discusses them for hours on end. So, like, I was trying to, I kept desperately trying to be like, okay, what is this group and why are they meeting? Why is this happening? So if you narrow that scope and you know exactly what it is and you can convey it, I think that's the fix. I keep, and I am probably going to try to, well, I don't know. I'm considering a lot of different things. I'm considering about making fun of politics because that's exactly what they do. They get politicians get together for a really long time to talk about the world and then they leave and we and the world spends the rest of its time talking about what they just talked about. You could so. I'm really in love with my idea of using painters making paintings as a metaphor yeah. for politicians painting their policy. 
Okay. But this is your poem, yeah, yeah, not yeah. my poem. That's just my pet theory. <laughs> <laughs> this is her fan theory. Yeah, this is Who my fan theory. Who are you shitting in this poem, Emily? Oh, God, I don't know. There's so many. Probably the two men who know they're insane. I think I've been very clear from the beginning that... They're probably just there sitting on a log, having a great time, holding hands. Yeah. They're crazy together. Yeah. They're crazy in love. Yeah. They're, like, just trying to figure it out. (laughs) (laughs) Trying to figure out what's happening, man. How crazy. Are they high? Are they crazy? Are they in love? Are they kissing? What's happening? It's all metaphysical. Okay. I don't actually know what metaphysics means at this moment. (laughs) But it's definitely something like that. Okay, okay. I'd love to keep talking, but my glass is empty and my brain is full. Thank you for sharing your rough draft today, and I look forward to hearing it again on Open Mic Night. Dear listener, if you have any edits, thoughts, or suggestions on this rough draft, you can find us on Instagram as Diamonds in the Rough Draft, or by email at diamondsroughdraftpod at gmail.com. We're going to put a copy of my edits to Eric's poem on the Instagram page after the episode goes live. So you can expect that. If you or someone in your life is interested in having a draft on this podcast or joining as a guest, please reach out. If you happen to be Neil Gaiman or Gail Carriker, please reach out quickly. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Diamonds in the Rough Draft. I'm Emily Anderson. And I am Eric Anderson. Have a great time and don't edit under the influence. All works read on the Diamonds in the Rough Draft podcast are original works and are not to be reproduced or distributed in any form without the express written permission of the author. All works of fiction on this podcast are products of the author's imaginations and any resemblance to actual events, places, or persons living or dead is entirely coincidental.